Tim, the next time you all sing that song, you're going to have to sing it at the beginning. (laughs) You all have got me so tore up up here, and I appreciate that. As you're turning to Colossians chapter 1, I want to uh, tell you I gave my life to Christ more than 30 years ago. And I didn't know any better than just to abandon myself completely to Him. I didn't know there were any other options. I was told when I was younger, you give it all or you don't give anything. I do have a regret, though, about giving myself to Christ, and that is I didn't do it earlier, when He first knocked on the door of my heart. It was that kind of experience that's made me interested in studying and understanding unbelief or a lack of abandon to Jesus Christ. Recently, one author has written about that, and he has discussed a couple of different responses people have to their unbelief in Christ and His Word. One is, can be described with the word dilemma. And that is, you come to the logical conclusions of your beliefs and there's simply no way to be moral, there's no way to be faithful, there's no way to produce anything meaningful in life. That's essentially the atheistic approach to life. There aren't many of those, and almost all atheists in the world are located in Europe and America, not the other continents. Few exceptions to that. And lately they've been rather noisy with publications and interviews and the like. They, um, but I, I learned when I was a boy uh, that around a country pond at night, a couple bullfrogs can sound like a thousand. And so I don't think you need to be bullied or intimidated by that. But that's one approach, and that is you have a dilemma. You, you have to live the logical con- conclusions of your beliefs, and if there is no God, and what he says about Christ is not true, then there's no reason to act in a decent way towards fellow men. The discussion of human dignity and freedom is meaningless. There's no reason to have human dignity and freedom, and the world should descend into anarchy and chaos. But there's a second that is far more common, and that is not dilemma, but distraction. And that is, those who do believe that there is a God and have something of an admiration for Jesus Christ are closer to Him than those who don't believe Him at all. And getting close to Him is unnerving because they're outside the will of God. They've not embraced Him fully. They believe there's a God, but they haven't abandoned themselves to His Son, Jesus Christ. And so, to deal with the restlessness and the lack of peace inside, what they must do is distract themselves from the voice inside that's dealing and bothering them, from the witness of creation, from the conscience, from the constant movement and conviction of the Holy Spirit. And that is why I think that over the last quarter century, earbuds and headphones have become more popular. They are everywhere. They're ubiquitous. People always have something sticking in their ears. Or they always have noise around them. Blaise Pascal said the number one cause of human unhappiness is that we have not learned to sit quietly in our room by ourselves. People don't want to do that because they're afraid that if they do and they have some quiet, they will start thinking and what they think about will not please them or make them happy. It will unnerve them. 
Some people simply cannot stand the silence. And so they get distracted. Our culture is profoundly distracted. They're distracted in many ways by social media. Now, social media can be a good thing, but there are some that are actually growing to the point, can you believe this, who are actually addicted to social media. There are some that are having to treat that one way or the other. And they spend more time with electronic friends on Facebook or other social media than they do their own families. There's more conversation and there's more applause and more likes given on social media than there is between family members. And if it's not social media, then it's with whatever is most popular on commercials lately, especially weight loss. I hope you'll be healthy. Don't misunderstand me. Healthy is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. But the truth is, is that we are slowly growing into a culture where if you're overweight, you're worthless. And that's sad. That's not right. Because quite frankly, once you hit 40, it is downhill. <laughs> and it is a fight constantly. And so if it's not social media and weight loss, then it's celebrities. And may I just say to you, I hope you're not related to them, but I sure hope the Jenners and Kardashians don't have any hidden children. <laughs> if they do, the media is going to find them and make them celebrities. And the reason that they are constantly presented to the nation and the world through the media is that people are interested in them. It's not that there is no demand. It's that there is constant, relentless demand for details, some I wish would stay secret, about celebrities. We are wildly, wildly distracted by many things. In fact, this is a culture of mass distraction. And the Colossians in their city were not much different. I won't go into detail this morning, but there were multiplied and myriads of distractions in that particular city, that culture, that region. And in the midst of it all, Paul exalted Jesus above all the competitors in the ancient world. He exalted Jesus, beginning in verse 13 of Colossians 1. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. And He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him all things consist. And He is the head of the body, the, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in Him... All the fullness shall dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself. We are a church that has intentionally decided to magnify Jesus Christ as Lord. And there are good reasons in this text to do so. The interests of Christ are worthy of our very best attention. Well, why is that? You have a skeletal outline on the back of your worship guide, and the first reason is this. Jesus Christ redeems sinners. The word redemption is taken out 
of the ancient world. Oftentimes, prisoners would find themselves fined or indebted to the court, some indebted to the extent of their lives. And Paul picks up on that image and applies it to Jesus Christ. And the idea is, is that all outside of Jesus Christ are indebted to God's court. God is a king with laws and sentences, and we have been sentenced to death. We are in debt to the court. We are fined by the court, if I can put it that way. We are sentenced by the court to death, and yet Jesus Christ has come and paid the price to release us from that debt to God's court. That's called the ransom. He said in Mark 10, 45, I've come to give my life as a ransom for many. And so the process of that is redemption, and it says that what he has done in verse 14, that we have redemption through blood, the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. And so we are considered prisoners outside of Jesus Christ. Have you ever got your life tangled up with the prisoner before? I mean, someone that stays in constant trouble with the law. As a pastor, I've had to. Many times I've been delighted in some cases and disappointed in most by those who have been part or involved in the prison, uh, in the prison system. Uh, it, it, they, life ends up being a mess, and it only gets worse with the prison sentence. It's very difficult to pull someone out of that. Now, God has done it, but oftentimes it takes years and years and years of consistent, faithful living, more so than the average and ordinary person, to get beyond that. It can be a mess dealing with the prisoner, and yet God not only becomes involved with us prisoners, God gives His Son in death by His blood to pay the price to release them from His own sentence, from His own fine, from His own court, and that is precisely what He does. And it says in verse 13 that He delivered us from the power of that darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. The Colossians would be familiar with this. There was a colony of Jews that was conveyed from one region of the empire into Colossae. And they had permanent residence there. And so they would instantly recognize this particular reference. And he says in the same way that Jews were relocated to Colossae, the Father has relocated believers out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His Son. So with one judicial act, God decides to pay for the debt and the sentence of prisoners with the blood of His Son with one judicial act. With the second judicial act, he adopts them into his kingdom as his subjects and his very own children. Now, beloved, I want to ask you, a God like that, isn't he worthy of our best attention when it comes to his interests? Jesus redeems sinners. But that's not all. Jesus also displays God. When Muhammad wanted to display his God, he displayed him with a sword. When the Buddhists wanted to display their ultimate reality they do with a happy Buddha who is disassociated from human pain and human suffering and completely apathetic towards it. When the Hindus want to display their many gods, their gods that demand sacrifice and are pictured with grotesque images. But chapter 1 in verse number 15 says of the God of the Bible, He is the image of the invisible God, speaking of Jesus Christ. John chapter 1 verse 18 says, No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God, He has declared Him, speaking of Jesus. And Jesus said in John 14, 9, When you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. So Muhammad's God is depicted with a sword. The Buddha's God is depicted with apathy and distance from human suffering and concerns. The Hindu God is a, is a caste-developing grotesque image. 
But the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ determined when He came and wanted to show Himself to the earth, He looked just like Jesus. That is the God that calls us to Himself today. Are His interests worthy of our best attention? Oh, but there's a third reason. And that is, Jesus outranks creatures. It says at the end of verse 15, He is the firstborn over all creation, for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, invisible, invisible, whether, uh, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through Him. I was speaking to a Jehovah's Witness one day, and the Jehovah's Witness tried to use verse number 15, the firstborn of all creation, to argue that Jesus had a beginning and that He was created. Well, the text actually doesn't say that, does it? It doesn't say Jesus was the first created in verse 15, does it? Now, what does it say of Christ in the second phrase there? He's not only the image of the invisible God, He is what? The first... You've got a Bible. He's the firstborn. Well, that's not created. Paul could have used the word protos and connected it to the word created and said He was the first created. But that's not what he said. He said He was the firstborn, which involves conception and gestation, labor and delivery. And so I asked, so in eternity past, before the creation of the world, who was Jesus' mother? And then went on to say, this is an image. Exodus chapter 4 verse 22 indicates that the term firstborn was oftentimes used in the Old Testament for those who were never born and those who certainly weren't first if they were born. It is an image that takes off the ancient practice of making the first son born in a family the superior. He acts as something as an assistant father in a family. And when the father's gone, he becomes the head of the family. And the whole family, including the mother, would submit to the firstborn in the family. And so there was a hierarchy first organized around the father, then organized around the oldest born son. And if the father left the scene, then the son ended up being the head of of the family. That's why at the cross, Jesus is dying there, and he looks at John the Apostle and says, Son, behold your mother. And he says to his mother, Woman, behold your son. He there arranged for his mother's convalescent care because as the firstborn, he was indeed responsible for that. But in eternity past, Jesus did not have a beginning. He is not created. Verse 16 says, Instead, by him all things were created. Now, if there's some things not created by Jesus Christ, can we legitimately say all things were created by Him? Well, no. And so Jesus Christ did not have a beginning. So let me ask you about the age of Christ, the Son of God. Compared to His Father, how old was Jesus? Was He younger than His Heavenly Father? Was He older than His Heavenly Father? Or was He the same age? Well, was he older than his heavenly father, younger than his heavenly father, or was he the same age as his heavenly father? He was the same age. What about Mary when he came to the earth? Was he older than Mary, younger than Mary, or the same age? He was older than Mary. That's why R.G. Lee said that when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, he was the same age as his father and older than his mother. Because he never had a beginning, he is as eternal as his Father, and the point that Paul is trying to make here is that Jesus Christ is the exalted one, the superior one over all creation. And the term is used of Israel in Exodus 4.22. 
Israel was not the first nation. It wasn't even born. But it was superior in the plan of God. It was first in the plan of God. And so the Father's highest affections and greatest loyalties and consuming zeal are for Jesus Christ. And if that is where the Father has placed His affections, His zeal and His interest, it makes an awful lot of sense for the church and all Christians to do so as well in all the earth to hear His voice. But there's a fourth reason why his interests take precedent over all else. And that is verse number 17. And that is, he is before all things, and in him all things consist. He comes before all things. Jesus Christ then never had a beginning. And it's much of saying the same way that he's the firstborn of all creation. Order in the scripture receives priority. That which comes first is the primary leader and the utmost priority. So if Jesus is before all creation, then Jesus Christ is the priority to God the Father. And this is the way it is in heaven now, around His throne. And this is one day how He will make it on the earth, and that explains the book of Revelation, where God clears away everything that competes for the loyalties of His people on the earth. There's a fifth reason, and that is Jesus Christ orders chaos. I don't know if you know very much about atoms and their operation and their substance and what they consist of, but an atom actually has more space in it than it does matter. Electrons, protons, neutrons, they operate and they function together cooperatively in every atom. However, the mystery is How do they hold together and not automatically split themselves? Humans have to split atoms. And by the way, don't attempt that. We'll have a mess on our hands, okay? But when you split an atom, you've got a mess. But the atom itself holds together despite its dynamic, thriving energy that takes place. And despite the fact there is more space in an atom than there is matter. How is it that the atoms don't split themselves? How is it that all of that energy holds together and is productive? And how is it that all of the atoms hold together as they do? Verse number 17. In Him all things consist. On a small scale, all things consist. The reason atoms aren't splitting themselves and creating a global universal mess is that Christ intervenes and holds all the atoms together. Folks, I have a hard time keeping up with four children, much less four atoms. And all the atoms represented in this place. But Jesus Christ holds them all together. And that's not only true on a small scale, that's true on a cosmic scale. He keeps the earth the right distance from the sun and the gravitational force of the sun at just the right rate to keep the sun from being pulled in or pulling away. During the seasons when the earth tilts, it tilts at just the right angle and just to the right degree in the winter, and just the right degree in the summer. He holds together the small and the large-scale issues. Shouldn't we privilege then his interests above all else? Well, there's a sixth reason, and that is Jesus Christ rules the church. To, To make this point, Paul surfaces two images in verse number 18. It says, and he is the head of the body. The church, who is the beginning, or Christ is the beginner, 
the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. What, G, what, what a head is to a body, and a head of state is the, the body politic, Jesus Christ is to the church. And so it's incumbent upon the church to relate to Jesus Christ as a human body does to a head, and not to invert the relationship to where the church is at the head and Jesus Christ is merely the body. That's not the appropriate place or posture. Instead, Jesus Christ is the head. He's the brains behind the operation. He makes the decisions. He sends the signals into the body. And he relates to us as a healthy head does to a body. And therefore, the church must be healthy. And to be so, it must relate appropriately to the head, receiving the signals and obeying the brains behind this operation. And then again, he's the firstborn from the dead. He's the, prior, the, the, the pattern and the one that rose from the dead that sets the pattern for all of those who know him as well. And so what happened to Jesus Christ on the third day after his crucifixion is the hope and the future of all those who follow Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. And so Jesus Christ rules the churches. And to relate to him appropriately, we obey him. And so that is to say, whether in Greenville, South Carolina, or Louisville, Kentucky, or Athens, Georgia, no church is permitted to act contrary to Jesus Christ and call itself a legitimate church at all. Jesus Christ then rules the church. But there's a seventh thing. And that is, Jesus Christ embodies God. So it pleased the Father in verse 19 that in Him all the fullness should dwell. All the fullness of God dwells in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is just as much God as if He were not man at all. He's just as much man as if He were not God at all. He's not half man and half God, not all man and no God, not all God and no man. He is the fullness. He is God. He is man completely. So everything that is needed in human life and to relate appropriately to the divine Father is found in Jesus Christ because he's fully God. He offers full salvation and provision for what we need to come to know his Father and to follow him. And now we have to do something about it. C.S. Lewis said that Jesus in the Gospels was never regarded merely as a great teacher. That is what some want to embrace Christ with. I spoke to an atheist one day and asked him what he thought of Christ. He said, he was a great teacher. And I said, well, wait a minute. He taught that he was God. To be a great teacher, you have to tell the truth. Wasn't quite prepared for that. So he had to recalculate and start rethinking. And, and, and that is a popular notion among some today. But in the Gospels, when Jesus appeared, no one accused him of being merely a great teacher. That was not the effect he had upon the people at all. They were not inspired to say, oh, he's merely a great teacher. They said something else about him, and they responded in three different ways, Lewis says. He said they either responded with hatred, or they responded in terror, in sheer fright. Or they third responded with adoration of him. But they did not say this silly thing 
that Jesus Christ was merely a teacher. In fact, he goes on to say, there was no trace of people expressing mild approval of Jesus Christ. All responses to Christ were full of energy. All responses to Christ were zealous responses, is what they were. It's entirely appropriate to have a mild response to a book you have read. It's entirely appropriate to have a mild response or mild approval of a restaurant. It's entirely appropriate to have a mild response or mild approval of a movie. It's entirely appropriate to have a mild response to a vacation rental. But ladies and gentlemen, let Beach Haven make it very clear today. The only appropriate response to Jesus Christ never has the word mild or casual in it. The appropriate response to Jesus Christ is zealous embrace and advocacy for his name. And anything less is inappropriate for the name of Jesus Christ. Because he redeems sinners. He displays God. He outranks creation. He precedes all things. He orders all things. He rules the church. He embodies God. And so Paul says in verse number 16, he said, For by him all things were created. All things were created through him and for him. You might say, well, wait a minute. We're talking about my purpose in life. What does Jesus have to do with it? And I would reply, everything. Jesus has everything to do with our purpose in life. We applaud for Jesus. We believe for Jesus. We confess for Jesus. We decide for Jesus. We eat for Jesus. We follow for Jesus. We guard for Jesus. We hope for Jesus. We instruct for Jesus. We journey for Jesus. We know for Jesus. We love for Jesus. We marry for Jesus. We nourish and narrow our choices for Jesus. We obtain wealth for Jesus. We parent for Jesus. We question evil for Jesus. We reorganize lives for Jesus. We study and spend for Jesus. We talk for Jesus. We unify for Jesus. We worship for Jesus. If we're in a radiology lab, we x-ray for Jesus. We yearn for Jesus and we act zealously for Jesus. It is all for Him. All things were created through Him and for Him. And so Paul will say in verse number 18, He is who He is that in all things He may have the preeminence. Now please don't make the mistake of confusing prominence with preeminence. We are not contending today that Jesus is to be prominent. Many can be prominent. There can be competitors and alternatives near him who are prominent. The word prominent is not exclusive enough. But the father is entirely exclusive when it comes to his son. He does not have equal respect for secularism and Islam and Buddhism and Hinduism and fleshism and humanism, and all the isms that should become wasms. He does not have that. He does not have equal respect for them all. Not all of them are prominent before God. There's only one place in the Father's affection and kingdom for a king. And so the word prominent is not enough for Jesus Christ. The Father excludes all others and leaves room for no one 
else. He does not, he does not, he does not insist that Jesus Christ be prominent, but preeminent. All others are excluded. He alone is worthy and he's exalted. He is the exclusive master of all to his father. Augustine, in fact, said, Jesus Christ is not valued at all until he's valued above all. Or as one little girl said, someone asked her after she committed her life to Christ, they said, well, how do you feel now that you've committed your life to Christ? And she said, well, Jesus has actually been in my heart for a long time. I just moved him from the front, from the back to the front, to the prominent place. So what must I do today with Jesus? Is my life more than the distractions of the earth? What I do is vacate the throne of my heart and plead with him to take his rightful place there. And if you're humble today, if you're willing to confess your guilt before God, if you trust only the death and resurrection of Christ, he will gladly and quickly and instantaneously take that place on the throne of your heart. Would you quickly stand with me, please, and let's pray. Lord Jesus, you alone are exalted to preeminence. There's no rival where you rest now. And we thank you, O oh God, that you've given your son a place where he alone is enthroned. Here in our midst, there's so many rivals. And some have carried rivals with them today into worship. And there's surely rivals in our world, sometimes in our homes, in our marriages, sometimes in our place of work. Sometimes in our entertainments, our interest. We're terribly distracted with rivals. In fact, we've been seduced and we've succumbed. And I want to pray, O oh God, that you would rip the idols of this age from our hearts and give us grace to vacate the throne of our lives and to enthrone Jesus Christ alone there. Because we know that is his Father's good pleasure. You have that opportunity now to do that. Our staff will be standing here in front. We want to help you with your spiritual need. We're going to sing a song in just a moment. And if you will, quickly step out from where you are and come see one of these staff members and share your spiritual need. Perhaps you don't need their help. You just come to the altar and give your all to Him and bow it all before Him because He indeed is worthy above all. You come as we sing. Tim, would you lead us, please?